Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing and entrepreneurism, and today we are speaking on the subject of family and passing on the values of intergenerational wealth. Also, we will talk about investing philosophies and investing from seed round all the way to an IPO with our special guest today, Renal Lukey. Now, my name is Peter Leung, and I'm a global real estate investor. I own, invest, and develop properties all around the world. You may have seen me on videos or on stage working with serial entrepreneurs or investors. I'm also a private equity business and angel investor as well. Please like our videos, subscribe, and give us five stars for what this is. Allows you to get more insight as to investing and entrepreneurism. So without further ado, today I'm privileged, proud to get a lot of wisdom from a dear friend, Renal Lukey, he's a family man of four kids, a career coach. He's done so much. I mean, including the fact that he's also an avid triathlete where he's competed with 70 plus triathlons, including 20 plus Ironman. I haven't even done one, right? And yet he's raised four children very successfully. Also a, a background in litigation where he's worked with, you know, in New York and various firms. Here's the thing. He's got a lot of diverse interests but he's also invested in a broad range of investments, industries and companies from seed all the way to VCs with a you know, small company mentality, but also a mega cap orientation as well. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Reynolds. It is a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm honored and delighted to, to be here. And I'm actually very delighted that the joys of telecommunications and how things have evolved allow us to be in San Francisco and Hong Kong at the same time chatting across the, uh, the continents, but uh, in the same living room, so to speak. I know it means everything. Everything about technology has evolved, right? And now we get to be introduced. We get to be, you know, surrounded by the greatest people all around the world. We've gotten used to it. No more flying, right? And I get to spend time with you. And I've spent multiple you know, I can say this over the last several weeks, you and I have spent hours on the phone, well, on the phone, right, on various, uh, you know, online communications so we can chat and your wisdom is incredible, right? You've done so much and, you know, coming from my, my background, it allows me to get a glimpse of where things are, are going with your insights, with your wisdom. But I think one of the things that I really want to talk about, and especially, you know, maybe with a little bit of, um, of, of my, my situation is actually family and investing. So I think one of the things that you really brought up, which I really want to first start off with, is talking about family. Because this is where, when you shared your story about how you not only have had a tremendous amount of success in financially, but you also were able to raise the kids with the same family values. I think that is very important. A lot of entrepreneurs all over the world, a lot of money here listening to you, but then we all have some of the same concerns about how do we, you know, groom our kids? How do we teach them the right values? So, Reynolds, can you share with us first and foremost how, you know, how you started your career, and then how did when you first had kids, how did you teach them some of the right philosophies that was right to you and your partner, into into to your children? So, <clears throat> that's a wonderful question. Thank you. I I'd like to say that. When I got married, it was a situation where I, I met my wife in college and we got married right after college and we did law school together. 
And one of the things that we did was we literally wrote down every single task that had to be done, laundry, wash the dishes, et cetera. And we split that list down the middle because she being an emancipated Wellesley woman, and we were at McGill Law School in Montreal, living on less than $5,000 a year uh, in Canadian, and uh, so including, including, including uh, tuition in those days. So, so we, we really counted our pennies. We literally counted. And so you, you share that. So we had that pattern of sharing inequality in our marriage. And, and it was a situation there that I always tell my wife, hey, you know, love you dearly and would like a family. But at the end of the day, you carrying the heavy load, you decide when we have a family and how many we have. And it was one of those things that when I applied to go to business school at night at New York University, my wife looked at it and not being competitive or anything said, oh, if you get in, all I'm going to do is just work more. And she was general counsel for a half billion dollar shipping company at the time in Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. And so she applied and not surprisingly, given her background, got in. And then she said, as she gets the package, she says, but what I really want is a baby. So the result was we wound up going and starting on all fronts at the same time. And we're blessed that by the time we finished business school, we had two kids. So my wife had the wow. distinction at NYU, both starting and ending New York University, MBA program, now Stern uh, program, uh, pregnant. You know, so our kids, if you will, grew up to the first two kids grew up in that. Then, then we had, then we had a, a miscarriage and it was okay, I guess that's done. And then about five years later, we were blessed to be able to, to have uh, another one. And we actually had a big discussion about starting again. And we had this discussion where we said, if one, then two, mm -hmm. because we said, otherwise this one child will be an only child given the separation. And we were so blessed that we did it because the two younger ones turned out to be two boys. And so we've got sort of two pairs and that the buddy system works really well. Right. So, so from a construct, we're blessed to have that. So that's, that's how the family, the family starts there. And when I was growing up, uh, I lived in a family where my dad was a family doctor in a small town in, in Saskatchewan where I was born, he delivered me. A town of about 300 in the middle of nowhere, two trees between us and the North Pole. You know, the sort of the classic, you know, Canadian prairie store, right? There's, 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 you know, it snows at Halloween, you play hockey outside as long as it's warmer than 15 below zero, and you don't take your tires off until Mother's Day, right? And it was growing up in an environment where my father is very intense, very active, and my mother did everything at home. She, she ran the finances, she cooked for five kids, she sewed. They would go out maybe once or twice a year to something special. And my mother would start in the morning cutting out the pattern for the dress. And by the evening, she would have the dress that she wore that evening to the event. Right? Wow, so all day, one day. She all in one day. All so, in one so, day. All in one day. So I grew up with this, this model of uh, we don't have a lot. You take care of things. You reuse things. I had hand-me-downs from my sisters, you know, that they're like shirts and stuff. And, and, and you didn't think anything about it. So 
I came from that background, a bit of this transitional uh, parents, you know, from, from the depression through the war, you know, start with nothing, new country, immigrant, and being the first generation, my, my three sisters were born in Germany and Austria uh, during after the war. And then I was the first Canadian and I have a brother as well. And again, this balance of, of making family a priority. And my father would spend time. So one of the things where my father would spend time and communicate values was that when we were about six, he would start having us go for a mile jog before breakfast about two mornings a week. So right up and early. Bright and early, you get up there, off you go. And so he modeled the behavior and I realized and became aware of the importance of modeling. I didn't appreciate it at the time. But what the other thing he did was, although he was super busy and developed a very active practice, uh, first in, in Saskatoon, then in Calgary, Alberta, that he would spend the evenings reading to my brother and myself various books, you know, with stories and things of this nature. So he read to us. This was our special time with our father. And I had that imprinted in me that I said, oh, this is a special time. So even though later on when we have our kids and as we're having our children, I am reading to them every night. Right. And from the age of, really from the age of about three, you know, when they can start to carry on, we, we would start doing uh, stories and then we do chapter books, a lot of fairy tales and things of this nature. So it's a way spending the time was the key. And, and God gives us each the same 24 hours. And that was the thing that I had learned from my father was, although he was super busy, and my mother was super busy, there was time for special things. And you, family is critically important. And it's in those daily modeling that you have a chance to do it. There's uh, quality and quantity. I love Napoleon's, you know, um, you know there, there's nothing like the quality of, of the quantity of 10,000 cannons. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to recognize that you spend that daily time with the kids and that, that then gives you the basis for credibility. So one of the things that for me was interesting was my kids developed favorite stories and sometimes it was reread them things. And we did things and we'd start off with fairy tales and we wound up with Lord of the Rings and fairly complex stories, the, the Lensman series and you know, some things like this that range across big topics and a lot of C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the right. Witch and the Wardrobe. And that's why, for example, my youngest son is Caspian because my older two kids loved the Narnia series. And as a result, they wanted a Prince Caspian. They said, so that's why my youngest son is Caspian because his older kids, siblings, wanted to have a Prince Caspian. So he is to us, to this day, the Narnian Prince. Right. So, so Ronald, how did, you know, you've had a very busy career, right? I mean, you've had kids, you know, while you're in law school and so on and so forth. So how were you able to juggle? How were you able to have both? I mean, obviously you wanted to spend time and you wanted that modeling, but how were you able to teach? I mean, you, you, the story you shared with me in various, I mean, they've had level of degree of successes themselves. And how did, you know, how did you give them some of these things or how did you, 
let them model after these things? And how were you able to teach them the philosophies of that value? Because, you know, our parents grew up a certain way, you grew up a certain way. Now you've given them a pedestal, right? Like, you know, a stepping stone. How were you able to replicate that for them so they had successes on their own way? So, you know, it sounds, it sounds remarkably simple at times, but one of the things we recognized with our children was that as of about the age of, I'd say, five to six, we would start having these discussions about this. It was a given that you did certain chores. It was a given that you cleaned up your room. It was a given that you did those types of things. And there was just these expectations. That's just what you do, all right? But we also recognized the value of incentives. So one of the things, for example, was that if there was a subject that I wanted my kids when they were below the age of six, was I discovered the currency was candy. In their case, it was Twizzlers. I, I mean, I, if, if they went and they went you know, ice skating or if they did something or where they weren't quite sure and they had a good successful, they would get a Twizzler. They'd get a single Twizzler, right? And, and if it was an outstanding day, they might get two Twizzlers, right? So, so you, you had that. But then once they're, about, once they're in school and, and can start to do math and understand things, we would have this discussion and say, okay, for a given set of things that you do, tasks that you do, here is your allowance, right? But you can't just spend your allowance any way you want to. We had what we called, and we had from various sources, the 10-10-80 rule. So it was 10% you give to, to church, 10% you save, and you live on the 80%. Because ironically enough, we had discovered in our own personal lives, by living that from the time we were married and throughout our time, having lived with that and use, gave us a basis that allowed us as we grew to maintain a proper relationship with money. We went from, from, from at law school, going to New York and working in law firms across the street from one another to suddenly having to pay more in taxes than we had lived on. I mean, it was quite a jump. But by having that same philosophy of 10, 10, 80, it allowed us to shift. So we just gave more to the church. You know, we gave, you know, we, we, suddenly, we suddenly had enough money that we could actually start to invest. If we would, and, and we had the sort of, we learned, you know, there's bonds, there's stocks, uh, there's real estate. I mean, my, my wife, our, our experience with real estate was, was quite serendipitous. We bought our first house. And after three years, we moved. And my wife said, wow, the property has gone up in value. You can make money in real estate. So, you know, we got into, you know, started, started getting into to various real estate and condominiums and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, that's just an example. So, but that's, that's where we started. The kids had to do, you know, this 10, 10, 80. And, and the thing, though, and this is the thing which is fascinating with kids was we have four kids. And there are two of our children who growing up where it was give 10%, save you know, 10%, and spend the rest 80%, right? Spend it joyously is, is the idea. But two of them would actually save 80% and spend 10%. Wow. Whereas the other two were, were like always like, it's Thursday. Can I get a bridge loan to Friday? 
And what would you do? What would you do? Now, if they didn't no, have money, no, no, what no, did you do? No, what they did, we, that we said no. We said no. So they, so our kids, our kids had this financial transaction interactions among themselves, you know, where they would have to figure out what they were doing. So, so our, ironically enough, our oldest and our youngest are in finance. You know, one is the, one is the, the controller for the, for the tech interactive tech museum. And, and the other is, you know, got a CPA and is now working in as an investment counselor at, at Fidelity. Okay. Those were the bankers. Okay. Right. And, and, and it's really funny. They are the ones where, where the ones in the middle who are the super great with people, you know, everything else like that. Not that the other two aren't good with people, but they have the two in the middle, you know, the, my daughter and, and the other son, like are super people. Perfect. But they were always, they were, they were definitely like, they, they were burnt, you know, they're spent. I mean, like, how do I get through Thursday, right? And so, so you know, the, my daughter would go to her older brother and, and my, the middle brother would go to his younger brother. You know, so, you know, they would, this negotiate, and it's, and it's one of the reasons, I think, where they learned how to interact on multiple levels. Right. But they couldn't, they couldn't go to mom and dad and always get bailed out. That, right. That could never happen. So you, you talked about how your, uh, your son needed a car for work. So can you share with us how, you know, I mean, you, you've got, I mean, I, I, you've got, I, I wouldn't say uber amount of wealth, but what we, you do is you have ample of it, right? Based upon your 10, 1080, you, right. you, you've got a lot of wealth, right? More than you can spend. But at the same time, what you did, so you had an abundance of wealth, but you didn't really, how did you, how did you respond when your child, you know, at the age needed to go to school and also, you know, and also needed to travel there. So they obviously needed a car. How, how did you respond and, and how did you, through that process, teach them a, teach them a thing or two about finance? Sure. So, so with respect to college, one of the things that was important for us was that our kids were going to go to college. We, we knew that. So what we literally did was as of the time that they were born, we were setting money aside. Now we thought we were setting aside an outrageous amount of money. As it turned out, we were lucky. <laughs> it was just enough. Uh, because our, our, our recognition was that if we could give our kids one thing, which was to come out of college with zero debt, that would be super helpful. And so we saved, you know, let's say 150 to 200,000 per child we saved and put aside. And so by the time, but, you know, so, but on a steady, you know, year by year basis for each of them in turn and, and built that out. And that was part of our budget. You know, that was part of what you, you put that aside. That was, that was over and above the 10%. That was over and above the 10% that we saved. <clears throat> so we did that. So my son, who's the spender, okay, is in at UCLA in a fraternity. And so he finishes his first year and he has got this opportunity uh, to work with a uh, semi-professional soccer club in South LA, but he's in North LA at UCLA. And so he needs to get there. So it's, it's a 40, 40 mile, 50 mile round trip. Right. So he tries borrowing a car that doesn't work. And uh, so he comes to me and says, dad, I, I need a car. And I said, okay. He says, well, 
how are you going to pay for it? Well, it's, it's, I've got this summer job and I have to go, you know, there's 50 miles, 60 miles. Okay. So, well, give me the budget. What's how, how many miles? Okay. Now how, you know, what's the insurance going to be? What's the initial costing? What do you think you can budget? What is it that you can afford there? So we have this discussion and he says, okay, well, I'm going to make, you know, for the summer, I should be able to make at least five to $6,000. Okay. Right. All right. So I said, okay, five to 6,000 for the summer. It says, yeah, but they'll only pay me at the end of the summer because it's on a commission basis, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So we go through the summer. He, you know, and what I did was I had him fly up because it turns out, you can arbitrage between LA and San Francisco. It's, LA is about $1,500 to $2,000 more per car. So it comes up, I go to the Toyota, we get them a Camry with 180,000 miles on it for 4,500 bucks, right? right. And you know, solid, reliable, whatever. So I said, okay, I put up and I said, okay, remember mom and dad, the bank of mom and dad. So we put up the money, set it up, whatever. Gets to the end of the summer and he says, um, well, it seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding. They, they, they actually, you know, didn't pay me the full amount. They actually paid me barely anything at all. And so I, I can't pay off, you know, the loan as, as I had agreed I would. I said, okay, that's fine. The bank will repossess. And he said, like, what? I said, yeah, the, that's, you know, if you can't pay your debt, you know, the bank repossesses. I mean, if we were a regular bank, this would be. This so you took away the car. So, so I was, I was, I said, I will take away the car unless you make payments, right? And I said, if, if because if you're not gonna make any payments, right, the bank will repossess. He said, but that's not fair. All my bros in, 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 in the fraternity, their parents, they give them a car and it's not some old Toyota. It's like a new one, you know, it's not fair. I mean, we had this whole situation there. I said, no, I said, this is what you, these are the rules. This is what you signed up for. If you are a person of commitment, if you're a person of integrity, if you are a professional, and we always talked about them being professionals because they wanted initially to be professional soccer players. And I said, you have to do things professionally, right? Good, bad, and indifferent. You have to live up and be a person of your word. You have to be a person of integrity. And so I said, you've got to do something. I said, can you, you know, at a, if you can pay something, we will, we can rewrite the terms. We can extend the term. We can have a different discussion. We'll change the interest rate, you know, cause it's gotta have interest. It's, this is not okay. And so he wound up having to go to work in a shoe store. And all of a sudden, instead of being Mr. Cool at the fraternity, it's like, Hey, how can I help you? What is your shoe size? And, and he did that for a semester and swore he would never do that again. And he credits it. He came back about a year later and said, dad, thank you for doing that. He did eventually, you know, through working every weekend, you know, he was a couple times a week, he was in the shoe store and having to do his shoes and whatever. And it was, and, and he learned the, the consequences and, and it gave him an appreciation for what he had. And as a result, he's gotten much better with his money. Now he's not, you know, he still likes the good things, but he's, he has also learned how to save. He right. has also, and what he's also learned is 
is that, and he does the thing for himself and he recognizes, and this is the other thing too, and you asked the question about children, is boundaries. Robert Frost in his poem says, good fences make good neighbors, right? And I think that was the thing with our kids was they always, there was, were strict boundaries that they didn't cross, but as they grew older, we would extend the boundaries. Right. And in, in this situation here, again, it was, how can we make this a learning experience? And our children have friends of theirs where in Silicon Valley, I remember vividly, this was back in, in the late 90s with the first internet wave there, where having somebody across the table tell me, I'm not sure how I'm going to get my 18-year-old able to, to deal with $90 million. I was like, why are you giving a 19-year-old you know, $90 million? I mean, this is, this is unfortunately a part of the world, and this comes with it, where our children had friends of theirs, where the boy gets a Porsche 911 for his 16th birthday, all right? A brand new, and wraps around a tree three months later. So what do his parents do? They give him a Mercedes 500 because it has more airbags. And so like, that's not really communicating the right values. And our, our children by that point understood that. They understood why, for example, you know, everybody else, everybody else has got a TV in their bedroom. They didn't. And, and by the time they got to be late teenagers, it's, oh, thank heavens we didn't do that because I actually was able to study in my room. And as right. a result, they, they value, you know, their, their professional and educational advances. So it's those kinds of things. But that, the story of the car is a culmination of, of that whole thing, whereas there are actions, there are consequences, and you have to let your children fail and recognize the failure consequences of failure early on so that it doesn't happen when they're first time in their 20s. Okay, so how did you, I mean, you know, this is very important. This is information that obviously I'm taking to heart because, as you know, I've got a 14, 15 month as, as of yesterday. Um, so from that, how important and how did you get, you know, relay the message of the 101080 in terms of the savings? Because obviously that, no matter how much you make, uh, you know, savings is a very important part because otherwise it's the hand-me-down, like you, how much are you given your children. But aside from that, if they want to build for themselves, you can only do it in form of, you know, income and, and savings, right? So how did you, you know, can you share one or two things as a tip, how we can get your children to save in your case, to, to give them that, that, that value? Getting our, and that's why I say we, it goes back that you have to have an honest discussion with your children about money, really by the time, you know, from five, six, seven, eight, you know, that they understand what things cost and, and put it in terms that they can understand. Now, you, you, can't, you can't dump too much on them. I mean, there's the, there's the classic story of, of you know, having a, a, a trunk filled with goodies. You, you can't ask a child to lift up a 200-pound trunk, okay? They have to grow into it. So, you know, part of it was growing up, our children recognized, number one, we did not go out that much. We didn't, you know, eating out was something that we talked about was a special treat. Mm. And it was, and, and we often had the discussion of we cannot afford this. And it was 
but dad, you have this, or mom, why can't, you know, everybody else is, and we changed it said, okay, we choose not to afford it, okay? Because this is, you know, you know, and we would discuss with them that, you know, this is what we're giving to the church. This is what we're giving to this charity. We're, you know, we would have those discussions so our kids began to understand and say, that's what our parents are doing. And you can, you can only do it through modeling the behavior. Your kids are watching you all the time, right? And it's the old, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Doesn't work with kids. Right. Kids are, you know, and the other thing too, and on the issue of money and, and how your children learn to respect boundaries is that my wife and I were absolutely focused on never arguing in front of our children. We never allowed our children to play the game off against one another because trust me, they would, you know, kids do this. They're, they're, <laughs> they're good at it. They're really good at it. And like I had one, one of mine was like, well, dad, you know, I am your favorite child, aren't I? And it would, you have the discussion. No, you know, I love each of you. You're all special. I love each of you in your own way. And I love you equally. Okay. I love each of you, especially in each of your own way. I don't love one more than the other. Okay. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is special. And so that's, that's important. Okay? Right. And, and, and every so often, you know, they, they, they'd say, you know, one of them would try the stunt <laughs> like, uh, well, I was talking to mom and she said, I'm the smartest. And I could sit there and I'd say very straight and said, I am sure mom did not say that because she would never say that. And we would have a discussion about that. And they, they learned that, oh, okay, mom and dad are actually talking. We can't, we can't do that. So that's one of the key things is that, that you need that values and the protection of the relationship with your spouse has to come first. I think sometimes people get, get wrapped up and, well, I, I do this all for my children. And it's not the right thing to communicate to your children that, that, they, that they're little princes and princesses and that they come before the relationship with the parents. Because the reality of it is <coughs> you, have your, you have your kids for a certain time, but your spouse, you hopefully have, you know, you had them before and you have them after. You know, I was like, and, and trust me, you know, when, when, when you're getting older, it's nice to have somebody there next to you as opposed to not. And your kids will be very thoughtful, but you know, they, you know, if you're not living together, they don't come every day, right? So, you know, and, and, by, and our kids, and this was really cute. My daughter came home when she was in her early 20s from college and had, had different experiences and was, was seeing more. And she comes in and she said, she said to us uh, on the weekend, she said, I hope I am as, in, as much in love with my husband when I am your age, as you two are. And, wow. and I think by, by having our kids see that, and I was blessed and we were, both my wife and I were blessed, our parents were very passionately in love with their partners, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and they modeled that behavior that that was important and that was a critical part of the life. And so we try to model that for our kids. And as a result, we can have honest discussions like, 
No, that's not happening. I mean, it's it, it gets you know. Sometimes it's, <clears throat> hey, could you two keep it down? You know? <laughs> right. Oh. So here's something I, I want to. Yeah. So we're gonna have a two part series. So first we're gonna talk about the family. So which we're, right. we're talking about right now. Here's the thing. Before we cap off this this first bit, Reynolds, can you share with me? Um, you know, there's a Chinese saying called wealth does not pass three generations, right? So yes. you know, somebody makes it, somebody, you know, builds it and the third one screws it up. So Absolutely. how, I mean, you've done, you know, you've built, you come from a family where you've adopted some of those values, expanded on those values, built on those foundations where, you know, you, you shared again, 10, 10, 80, right? And where you taught them the value of money, right? They've had their own successes. Do you talk about wealth that's passed on to the next generation? Yes. Right and yeah. how, if, if you don't mind sharing with us. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to because <clears throat> not surprisingly, you, <laughs> even as lawyers, you don't write a will until, until, you, until you have children. And then all of a sudden you start, <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, what have you. So we evolved over time. And one of the things that we saw when we looked at passing of intergenerational wealth and, and making sure that kids are ready for it was we adopted early on a proviso that you don't get the principal, you don't get the corpus until age 35. Okay. Okay. So that's just, okay. So that's as a, as a baseline. And, and what we did was after going through different things and, and different stages require different things and we would have when they were younger, the whole selection of who would be their guardians and having that discussion and having that discussion with our children is who do you resonate with? You know, is it aunt and so-and-so or is that, are these family friends or what have you and you know, who they are? And we had those discussions with them. You know, we had those discussions with them that if something happens, mom and dad are no longer here, then, right. then you would be with this aunt and uncle or you would be with these family friends or depending upon where we were in the world because some, you know, we're in Germany or we're in different parts of the world and we're not close to family physically. So what would be involved? And then having the discussions and in the will, what, what kind of schooling we were expecting, what the budget would be for that. We put that all in the will you know, we, and we would have the discussion with, with the guardian. Now we're at the stage, well, because they are all successfully launched they're they're making money they have been working etc what we've told them is we're, we're re, we restructure this and we did this uh, actually about two years ago is we said look you kids understand uh, how to make money and you guys are working on it what have you now hopefully you won't be getting this money for a while but we're just going to take the estate and split it into five chunks we're going to give each of you gets 20 percent okay we're just going to take the whole corpus and get 20 percent and the final 20% goes into a donor advised fund, a DAF, pour, it in, or pour over in the trust there. And you all, the, the, the note on the trust is that the trust should last for at least 20 years. And you four children need to get together once a year and decide who is going to be getting the money, who you're going to donate to. You know, we, we have here, you know, there's certain priorities, okay? So there's our alma mater, whether it's Wellesley, MIT, McGill, NYU, you know, what, how much they should get for the different programs there. I mean, we've, we've, we've done separate things at MIT and Wellesley, for example. Those are our first schools. We have our strongest affiliation there. And there's special programs that we have on the labyrinth that we've done at both schools and, and religious studies and 
and spiritual support for the kids because that's one of the things we feel often gets overlooked. But after that, you know, is it the YMCA or who is it? And the idea is that our kids will get together for 20 years, once a year at least, and they will also have to have that conversation with their children. And as a way that they're having the discussion as to, you know, um, you know, grandma and grandpa, you know, have this money that, you know, we have to give away. And, right. and I, to be fair, I, I had got the idea from a, a fellow I truly respect who, who was somebody who at a startup took it from, from basically barely revenue to three and a half billion. And he's worth several hundred million. And what he did was he, in a sense, did the same thing, which he put all of that into trust and his children just get to decide who gets the benefit of the trust, but the mm -hmm. kids don't get it. And our, our feeling was, you know, that, that given what housing costs or what have you, that that extra money might be helpful for college or things like that. So that's, that's fine. You will pass that along. But, you know, our, I remember having this discussion with my parents. We also had it with my in-laws that we had these discussions about the transfer, what would happen, what kind of trust structure you would have, a lot of people don't have that discussion because the idea of, of intergenerational transfer of wealth and having the person who is potentially getting it have the discussion, you know, where should it go, what have you, is uncomfortable for some people. But I yeah. think that if you have that solid discussion so that people say these are the expectations, and oh, by the way, you're not getting everything. You know, that, and, and I think this is the thing is, is there are classic, Agatha Christie's stories of, of how wealth given in excess before you are emotionally mature stunts your emotional and, and, and intellectual and financial uh, growth the same way that if you cut open the chrysalis of, of a, of a of a butterfly, of a caterpillar, as the butterfly is trying to come out, if, if, if halfway through the process, as the butterfly is coming out, if you cut that open so that the butterfly doesn't have to work so hard, that butterfly will never fly. Because it's only by going through that painful process of getting dried up, can the butterfly in fact fly. Mm. And I think this is the same analogy I like to use with the kids, is you have to give them the opportunity to go through that growing process so they understand and get a a relationship with money which is you know it's nice okay it's useful but money makes you only more of what you already are mm. so and it magnifies so it magnifies the character it absolutely just magnifies it and so the point there is if you can help your kids get a right relationship that i'm not living at 120 or 130 percent on my credit card I mean, this, this is one of the things too, just a really simple thing. Our kids know, and we would have this discussion, we have never paid a finance charge in our life on a credit card, okay? You just, you, you just don't do that, okay? You keep your spending in line. And you know, when, we moved, you know, when we moved from being a two-income family when we were living in New York and working, and we moved to Germany the first time, and I was the only one who was able to work, my wife was then at home, with uh, four, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a three-month-old, we had already, you know, we were down <laughs> down to one salary. 
but we had already just done that because what we did was we figured out, so like, wait a second, how can we live on one salary and save the other, you mm. know, to accelerate that, you know, so that was one of the things that we had done and that allowed us the flexibility and you pass those stories on to your children. Again, this whole issue, we choose not to afford, we, you know, you, you don't go out every week. It's a special treat and, and things of that nature. And by, by modeling that it's very cool. It's very countercultural to where we live in the Silicon Valley, for example. But we would do, for instance, rather than just sending our kids away to camp every year, you could send them away to camp, but only if you had, and this was a big thing, is we would have these two-week family vacations where we biked, you know, for two weeks. We, we would cover even, you know, they start off in the trailer in the back and the older ones were on their own. But they learned that just going through the adversity of, it rained, you know, you're biking and it rains, you deal with it or, or you have a flat tire and how do you fix a flat tire? All those little things come together. So how you just deal with adversity because you, you as a parent can never protect your child from all adversity. And I think we in the West, especially in, in, in Silicon Valley, especially have this idea that somehow we can cushion everything. Right. And the result is that when, when kids actually encounter adversity, who do they go to? And, and the nice thing is that by modeling that amongst our children, that as they've gone through adversity, they have learned that if they need help, there's mom and dad are always there, but they've also learned to rely on each other. So that's one of the reasons why they communicate. So <clears throat> let's just say when, when, when one or the other one has an unfortunate affair of the heart and it doesn't go so well, they have somebody they can talk to. Right. Because you can't talk to mom and dad about some of this stuff, clearly but they always have somebody who's got their back, somebody who will accept them back and say, yeah, you really messed up on that one. <laughs> but, but we still love you. Yeah. yeah. Come here, little brother. You know, come here, little sister. You know, and, and, and they, and they come together on that. And it's, it's fun to see, to see how that's, how that's evolved. And, and that's just, that's just time together. That's right. That's family adventures together. And, and things of that nature that allow them to have time where they have overcome adversity together. Right. And you brought up some very amazing points and, and, and it means a lot. I mean, you know, because I'm, I'm picking up the wisdom and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are too, because a lot of them are very successful entrepreneurs. We've got, you know, a lot of real estate investors. We've got a lot in the equities, a lot of bonds, a lot of people who are successful investors, but at the same time, you know, the, the, it's the man, money management. We might understand the money management, but how do we pass on those values? So part of here is it's not just sharing, you know, how to make the wealth, but how to preserve it. And I think that's very, very important to be able to, to carry some of those right skill sets in passing on to our children, which is our greatest asset. So, you know, that, that'll end part one. Reynolds, you have shared some amazing wisdom with us here today. And I, you know, I'm picking up still these little bits as to how um, to pass on, you know, not only what you make, but also the, the, the philosophy because teaching them our, our next generation, how to fish is much more important than how much fish we give them. Right. Right. And so with that being in, in mind, we're going to pivot in part two where you guys need to stay tuned because Reynolds is going to be sharing with us his philosophies about building the wealth that he's going to be passing on to his children. So, um, you know, without further ado, stay tuned for part two 
We're going to talk about wealth creation, his philosophies on choosing investments, as well as how he invests and what to look for in an investment. So guys, we're gonna start part two in just a few moments. Reynolds, stay put. We will come right back to you guys. All right, guys. Hi, we're back on this podcast.